My name is Michael Campbell. I'm one of the elders here. Um, glad you're here with us this morning to listen to God's word, which I will be bringing here in a moment. Not fully prepared. Need to get my notes out. A little bit behind here as we work through this. Last week, Matt kicked off a series we're doing, um, The Pillars of Our Faith. And something we've been talking about is the importance of creeds, confessions, some of the history and the foundation of our faith. That goes back quite a ways, right, um, to the days of the apostles. And today, what I'm going to do is walk us through one of those creeds, which is the Apostles' Creed. And I'm going to do this a little bit different. Than, than typically the way that our, our messages go. As usual, I'll tee it up, give a little background, some context. Um, but then I'm going to walk through each section of the Apostles' Creed with us and comment on them a little bit on each one. Am I good? Am I good now? Yeah? Okay. All right, thank you. That was getting awkward. Appreciate it. Okay. Now for the now for the next challenge, we'll just see if the uh, the stuff comes up on the screen. Okay. I'm going to have to probably speak a little loud, louder than I usually do speak. So um, if I my voice starts to drop, which I'm a pretty soft-spoken person, so my voice drops too much, somebody out there kindly. Yes, thank you, Maya. Just give me the, speak louder and smile. I usually hear that a lot after a service. So. Focus on smiling more. Um, thank you. I love you all, too. And that's one of the great things that I love about this church family is you guys are so forgiving and just very patient. So thank you for that. Um, it, it does make it a lot easier to get up here and speak with people. Because uh, there, there's not all the crazy pressure and expectations. Obviously, we want to honor the Lord and do, you know, the best we can to convey his message and his word. But as you've seen today, sometimes things don't go as planned. Um, in, in full transparency, this, because of the creeds, they're, they're not specifically a certain passage, Right? Reminding you what Matt talked about last week, creeds and confessions summarize our faith and our beliefs, right? They, they take scripture and they pull them into doctrinal truths. So it, it's not like I can go to a certain passage this morning, although we will hit a few passages, um, and summarize some of this up. So one of the things I leaned on heavily uh, was a book by Al Mohler called The Apostles' Creed. I highly, highly recommend this book. It's, it's a light read. There's not a lot in there as far as pages. It's about 200 pages, everything counting. I went through about 75, 80% of it in four days because um, it was just that good. And he really goes into The Apostles' Creed. Now, there's some other resources and other books I leveraged. Um, but this was a main one, and I'll, I'll be commenting out of that a little bit. So where did the Apostles' Creed come from? We think that the first version of it, and there's been a couple of versions. Remember, this, this isn't Scripture, so it's okay for these to evolve and to change, right? Scripture does not change. It's not culturally relevant, etc. Scripture is Scripture. That, that's our foundation, our firm foundation. However, things like creeds and confessions come up to address heresies or misunderstandings or to clarify those truths. The first version we think of the Apostles' Creed was about in the second century. There was another addition to it around the fourth century to kind of fill it out again to address some of the, the heresies. In the second century, remember this was the time when the apostles had just gone out of living memory. You know, they, they had passed away. Um, they were the last people to see Jesus. And 
church fathers were trying to know how, how do we communicate these truths, you know. Uh, there were things coming up. In the second century, there was something called uh, Marcionism. And Marcion was a, a church father, so to speak, but he rejected the idea of the Old Testament God, the God of the Old Testament. That whole Old Testament thing just needed to be gotten rid of because all it was was just death and judgment and bad stuff. And, you know, God is love, and that's it. That's all there is to him. So he rejected a lot of things, and that's part of where the Apostles' Creed came from, um, was to help address heresies like that. In the 4th century, Gnosticism gained a lot of ground, and that was, again, the denial of the deity of Christ, amongst other things. So you, know, you can see things like the Apostles' Creed. It was brought by the church fathers to say, guys, this is what we believe. These are doctrinal truths. Right, and not just to address the heresies and the misunderstandings, they were also used for instruction. Right, if somebody came to uh, imagine you were back in the the second century, you were a believer in Christ, and somebody came to you and said, you know, what, what do you guys believe? You know, th these were statements of faith. You know, truths that you could used to communicate to people what does it mean to follow Christ. Also, they were used for instruction, you know, as um, like in this setting, if we had the Apostles' Creed, we were back in the second century, we would go through one of these doctrinal truths, which just on a side note, I was telling Gina this morning that preparing for this message was a little different because basically every section, every line of the Apostles' Creed could be a sermon in and of itself and a long one, too, because there, there's so much doctrinal truth that's in there. So it, it's like a statement of faith for new believers, you know, that if somebody wanted to join the early church, we would say, okay, well, here, here's our confession of faith. Do you believe this? You have to confess this in order to rightly be a follower of Christ. So that, that's where it came from. Uh, it, it's been a really good tool but some folks may ask, you know, it, it's like, what, what is the purpose of it? You know, it, it's really like most of the other creeds and confessions. It summarizes faith. It summarizes what we believe, right? In, in Acts 16, 30, and 31, when Paul and Silas were in prison, and, you know, the, the, the Spirit shook the, the jail, freed them, and the jailer was going to kill himself. And, you know, Paul said, no, no, don't, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And the jailer was convinced by their message. And he said, well, what do I need to, to do to be saved? And they said, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what these creeds do. When we say, well, what does it mean to believe? They outline that belief. Now, as I had mentioned, the first version of this, uh, oh, one other thing before I move on, I did forget to, to mention this, uh, the name of the Apostles' Creed. It's legend, sort of, I'll call it legend, has it that it was the Apostles who wrote this. Um, there's really nothing to substantiate that at all. In fact, I would say that's probably not true. But what it does do is it summarizes the teachings of the Apostles and of Jesus. So that's why we call it the Apostles' Creed. It's had a couple other names, like the Rule of Faith um, from the 2nd century. There was a different name for it in the 4th. I forget what that is off the top of my head, but that, that's kind of, of what it is. So that's, that's where the name comes from on it. But one of the things we may ask ourselves is, what, is it, what does it really matter, right? Um, you know, 2,000 years ago, there were there was a singular event that happened right god himself came to earth took on flesh suffered and died for us for his people was raised again and early church fathers had to have a way to kind of explain that right when people want to know you know what do you believe in what does what does it matter? You know, why, why is Christianity different from something else? So it was a really great teaching tool. 
um, to teach doctrine. Now, unfortunately, at least in our day and age, and I think this is probably starting sometime around uh, the, the Enlightenment, do that in air quotes, that things like this started to take on a negative, uh, a, a negative tone, right? That somehow creeds and confessions are getting legalistic. You know, perhaps some folks think that they're, they're heresies in and of themselves, right? But one of the things that we, um, probably one of the reasons why we don't like creeds and confessions, though, to be truthful, and if we really peel back the layers of the onion, is it allows us to formulate a God of our own liking, one that we can bring down to our own level and kind of reason through and understand. Um, when you stand on the creeds and the confessions, you can't do that because it's very clear about who our God is. Some people don't think we need doctrinal truths, right? But how did Christ reveal himself? Through doctrinal truth, he called himself the son of man. In one instance we had, he said, before Abraham was, I am. A clear reference back to Exodus 3, when Moses was talking to God in the burning bush. And the burning bush, basically God, said, I am. When asked, you know, who, who, who should I say sent me? So there's definitely truths that, that are contained in here that are the foundation of our faith. Now, one of the things, if you would, turn with me to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is one of the, um, I'll reference some scripture this morning, but we won't usually turn there. Just jot it down for notes, but I'll be making some references. So again, you know, as we talked about, Creeds and confessions teach. They teach doctrinal truth. They are the foundation of our faith. One of the last things Jesus said, or that we have recorded, that he said was, and this is the Great Commission, of course, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I don't think it's a stretch to really say that what Jesus said, go make disciples, teach people all that I have commanded you, right? What are we supposed to teach them? We're supposed to teach them doctrinal truths. I mean, that may seem pretty, pretty obvious, but I'm getting ready to get into an example that might kind of blow your mind, right? He said, teach all I have commanded you, everything that is in Scripture, not teach what you like best or what you feel good with or whatever kind of suits you um, to teach people and call it Christianity, right? It, again... That's one of the things that the Apostles' Creed does is it summarizes the scriptural truths. But someone may ask, yeah, that, that's good and everything, but, you know, this was originally written about 2,000 years ago, and things have changed since then. And, you know, we, we've, we've been enlightened, and, and we're, we're not holding to all that, uh, that mysticism and, and crazy stuff like that. And, yeah, doesn't everybody believe in God? And we don't really need these things anymore. And some would just say, well, it's not culturally relevant because everything has to be culturally relevant these days, I guess. I want to read something for you, though. And, again, this is out of that wonderful book by uh, Al Mohler. And this won't be up on the screen, but, but bear with me on this. Because I, I think this... And the reason why I'm reading this, this, this piece is I think it does make this relevant, why the Apostles' Creed is relevant for us today and why we need to understand it. This is Al Mohler speaking. Many resist the doctrine of Christ's lordship. The forms of, res of resistance are many and complex. 
but the sinful heart loathes the lordship of Christ. For instance, one news story a few years ago from Tucson, Arizona, reflects this very fact. And then he's quoting something from that. In Tucson's largest Episcopal church, St. Philip's in the Hills, the creators of an alternative worship service called Come and See are bucking tradition by rewriting what has become prescribed ways of worship. For the faithful, that means that God isn't referred to as him, and references to Lord are rare. Lord has become a loaded word conveying hierarchical power over things, which in what we have recorded in our sacred text is not who Jesus considered himself to be, speaks St. Andrew's Associate Rector Susan Anderson Smith. St. Philip's Deacon, Thomas Lindell, added, The way our service reads, theology is that God is love, period. Our service has done everything it can to get rid of power imagery. We do not pray as though we expect a big guy in the sky to come down and fix everything. Let that sink in for a moment. That is a so-called Christian church in our modern age. You ask those people, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. What do you believe? Well, God is love. Well, isn't God our Father too, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? Well, you know, what, the hymn hall on that one? Probably. We tend to think that the enemy is at work out there. And that somehow the churches are a sacred ground that, like a vampire, he can't come on to. Folks, it's, it's here. It's in our midst. And I'm not saying that anybody in this room believes something heretical like what I just read. But the truth of the matter is that we all need to be clear on what our doctrine is, what our core beliefs are, and what our faith and our beliefs are founded upon. And that's one of the things the Apostles' Creed does. You know, during Thinklings, I, I, I'm sure I drove Matt crazy with, you know, we were going through liberal theology and all these things. And I would just I'd be like, why do people even bother? If, if you're going to take all of Christianity and the New Testament and the Old Testament throw it out, why are you bothering to call yourself a Christian at all? You know, if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you don't believe that he came and, and died for our sins and raised again. Anyway, that's, it just it, it blows my mind when we see things like that. But for some people, it makes them feel good. And, and that's unfortunate. So... One of the things Matt said last week was one of the most important things that we can, I'm paraphrasing it, I'm losing it. Um, one, one of the most important things we can believe is what we think about God, right? It, it's like that is one of the most important things for us is what do we think about God? What do we believe? So do we have the slides up for the Apostles' Creed? Are they on? There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's just do this. I'll, I'll just ask if Julie, can you go to the next slide, please? Again, lots of good technical difficulties this morning. We'll work through those. Um, so what do we believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I mean, that's the first line of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus, when his disciples asked, you know, teach us how to pray, how did he respond? Yeah, our Father, who art in heaven. I always say art because I was raised on King James, but... Our Father. He, he tells us God is our Father. Some of us are uncomfortable with that because we didn't have good fathers. We didn't have present fathers. Um, and I get it. it. It's difficult. But that doesn't give us the right to somehow diminish God as our Heavenly Father 
and try to put him in a box because it makes us feel better. Um, he is the father of his people. You know, he provides for us like a father. Scripture clearly teaches us that. He's creator of, he <clears throat> excuse me, of heaven and earth. Unfortunately, we have a lot of Christians today who believe that, well, this whole thing was just an accident and, you know, there was this big bang and, you know, we just sort of crawled out of the uh, primordial ooze, whatever that might be. No, God created the universe and he created us and that's why we all have value. That's why we are all precious and unfortunately we've lost that truth um, in our modern culture today. You know, when, when we ask about, you know, believing in God, going back to what, what I read out of uh, Moeller's book, you know, do you believe in God? A lot of people would say yes because, you know, to be American is to be Christian somehow, but most people don't understand what Christianity really is and what it means. You know, yeah, I believe in God. Okay, but do you believe that God is your father? Do you believe he's almighty, that he's sovereign? right, that, that God is in control. Because that, that's part of what Almighty means is it's his sovereignty. That's what it points to. You know, there, there's nothing that can thwart his plans. Yeah, the creator of heaven and earth, do you believe that as well? Do you believe that he is all-powerful, that he did create us and everything that there is? So these speak to some of those foundational truths like what we see at the beginning of Genesis in, in the creation story, Right? So it's important that we know which God we do believe in, right? Because even, even the, the demons believe in God. We know that. Scripture tells us, and they shudder because he is almighty, because he is sovereign. Julie, can you go to the next one, please? And we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. There's that word again, Lord who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And, and again, I'm going to just briefly touch on each of these, because as you can see, I mean, th this is chalked full of doctrinal truths that we could do a message on basically each one of these. So um, I'm, I'm trying to just hit some of the highlights, but we could go really deep on this, and um, it's a lot of good stuff, and that's one of the reasons why I recommend you pick up uh, Muller's book. Think about what I had read there, or maybe people you talk to, right? You know, um, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? Some people say, well, you know, I follow Jesus, and Jesus is love, and, and that's, that's basically it, right? Well, no, he's, he's the only son of God. He's our Lord, right? We're uncomfortable with that term lordship, uh, and I think that is very much in our, our day and age the hyper-individualism that we have. We don't like anybody to tell us what to do. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not optional. right? During the Enlightenment, some folks decided that, well, there, there's a historical Jesus and there's a Jesus of faith. And there, there are two separate things. So what they try to do is, is actually say, well, yeah, Jesus was a real person, but... You know, what he claimed to be is up for debate. You know, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Um, he's all or he's nothing. You know, he, he is the son of God. He is our Lord, or he's not. And that's a trap we need to make sure we don't fall into. Because our world will tell us, yeah, Jesus may have existed, but that whole thing about him, you know, performing miracles or dying, raising from the dead, ascending to heaven, that, yeah, that, that's far-fetched. That's just myth. That's legend. And the Apostles' Creed is here to help confirm those doctrinal truths that know that is who Jesus is. And the other part of it, which I think is, is well, I was about to say extremely important, but it's also extremely important because it's doctrinal truth, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, If 
If Christ wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit, that means he had a heavenly father, which means he was not God, which also means he was not sinless. So you can start to see the, the centrality of this, of him being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. There are some who are uncomfortable with this, that, well, that, that just seems far-fetched and very um, mystical or, or something to that effect, that, that it doesn't make sense, it's not rational. But you can see how it, it is central to our faith, right? Because, again, if that wasn't the way that Jesus came into this world, he was not God, then what, is, what are we doing here? Right? Our, our faith is basically empty. <clears throat> Julie, can you go to the next slide, please? I'm going to probably have to speed this up a little bit. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, was dead, and was buried, and descended into hell slash Hades. I'll get to that last one in a minute, so don't get distracted, please. Follow with me on the rest of them because it's, it's all really important. Um, he suffered. That's pointing back to the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, right, where, you know, the prophet Isaiah said that our Savior would come, that he would suffer. So, again, this, this is tying New Testament faith to Old Testament faith. It's why we can't take the Old Testament and jettison it. It's all the story pointing toward Jesus. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, I have the authority to lay down my life. I have the authority to pick it back up again. And he did. Again, that's a doctrinal truth. That, that is a power and a right that Jesus clearly said he had. And we get that in this other part about him being crucified, was dead, and was buried. 2,000 years on in, in our civilized world, um, it's hard for us to really understand the brutality of something like crucifixion. So some people like to think, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just sort of swooned or something like that. Crucifixion was a way that the Roman Empire, which lasted for almost 1,000 years, kept peace in the empire. Because when you saw people getting crucified, you knew what the consequence was. It was pretty brutal. Um, someone suffered a lot. Jesus suffered a lot going through that. And he did that for us, right? Julie, real quick, could you go to the very last slide? <clears throat> and then we'll come back. Thank you. This is another one of those little technical difficulties we had this morning, and um, I didn't want to breathe on anything, so I left this at the end. Um, but this is something that, that Moeller said about the crucifixion. Though denied by some, the atoning work on the cross reveals the fullness of God's nature and character. In the crucifixion, humanity observes the depth of God's hatred towards sin. In Christ's death, God's people view the tragic consequences of our rebellion. In the cross, God's people also learn the depth of God's love. He does not leave his people in their sins, damned to an eternity in hell. He comes to deliver them from the grip of Satan by delivering his own son. In the cross, God acted out his perfect nature and character. Thus, God revealed in Jesus' sacrifice the overwhelming intersection of his divine love and justice. Is God love? Yes. Is God just? Yes. Is he righteous? Yes. That was why Christ came and suffered the punishment and humiliation of the cross. Julie, can you go back up to the um, slide we were just on? Thank you. So that shows us, I mean, the, the cost of our rebellion was Christ on a cross suffering and dying for us. Now, 
sometimes people, as they're going through the Apostles' Creed, um, skip over the first half because their eyes immediately drawn towards towards this part, right? The he descended into hell slash Hades. Um, don't get caught up on the word hell. I, I love etymology, which is basically the study of where words come from and how they kind of evolve over time. And I'm gonna I'm gonna break this down real quick, where hopefully it makes sense of what this means. And if you see a modern translation of the Apostles' Creed, you will see that hell, the word hell has been replaced with Hades. Now again, this isn't scripture, so it, it can be changed to, to be more clear, to clarify for people, right? Um, back in the earlier centuries of the church fathers, they basically referred to Gehenna which is the word hell in Greek, um, as, as a place of, of the afterlife, right? And there would be eventually e eternal separation and damnation, separation from God and, and suffering um, in Gehenna, in hell. That word started to, to take on just that meaning, not meaning a place of the dead, the afterlife. It started to take on a meaning of <clears throat> eternal suffering, and, and damnation, which is kind of unfortunate that it, it lost its true meaning over the centuries. In Hebrew, the Greek word for the place of the dead is uh, Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades. So we typically stick with, with Hades, which means the place where the dead go. Not necessarily a place of separation, eternal separation from God, suffering and punishment. Just means, you know, the afterlife. So, we won't turn there right now, but um, I think in, in the book of Luke, we get some really good explanation of this. Right, so if we think about in Luke, um, starting in 1619, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Right, where... The rich man lived a very rich life, had all the good stuff. Lazarus was a beggar outside by his, his gate, and they both died. And the rich man found himself in Hades, in the afterlife, right, in torment and suffering. Lazarus found himself in the afterlife in the bosom of Abraham. Right. So if we go to that parable, we see a very clear illustration of the place of the dead, there is suffering and there is paradise, <clears throat> right? Where Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, the rich man did not. So if we look at scripture, we clearly see that when someone dies, there's two places they can go. Now, I think a clearer, well, not really clear illustration, but what, what makes it more concrete, because someone could still argue well, maybe Jesus went to the place of torment like the rich man did for some reason to, to finally do it. Um, I'll point to two things, again, in Luke. One, Jesus said, it is finished. Right? He didn't say, well, gee, I'm glad that part's over. Now I just got to go do the next part. His work was finished there. there. There was no need for him to go to some place of eternal separation from God and, and torment or punishment. But I think more clearly, if you look at what he said to the thief who hung there with him, you know, in <clears throat> Luke 23:43, when the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? So if we go back to that image from earlier in Luke of the suffering or the paradise, Jesus is clearly saying that's where he's going, right? Not, not to hell and some eternal separation and, from God and, and torment. So I don't want to belabor that too much, but I know that sometimes this can be a sticking point for, for people with the Apostles' Creed, and, and it's kind of unfortunate. So I hope that explanation of when you see this, he descended into hell, that's basically just place of the dead. 
right? The, the, basically the afterlife, not what we typically think of as Gehenna, the place of eternal separation, damnation, and suffering. So, but what this does do, though, again, for the swooners, no, Jesus suffered, fully died, was buried. He wasn't just unconscious for three days. He went into the afterlife, so fully dead. Just like he said, he would lay down his life, and he would be able to pick it back up. Julie, could you go to the next one, please? And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So he went there, and he rose again, just as he promised, and said that he had the authority to do. This is probably, at least in my estimation, one of the, the most pivotal aspects of our faith. Right? The fact that Jesus didn't just die and stay dead, or that he was somehow unconscious and lived, lived on. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, I mean, Paul puts it very succinctly. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Because basically, if he died and that was the end of the story, if he wasn't raised again like he said he would be, then he's just dead. And everything we believe is nothing. It's futile, as Paul says, right? The fact that he had the authority to lay down his life and pick it back up again is proof that he is God. That Jesus wasn't just some good teacher. He wasn't just a really good role model. He claimed to be God, everlasting, Again, the I am, and he was. That is how he was able to, on the third day, rise again from the dead. So again, that's one of those things that's a non-negotiable in our faith as we go through the Apostles' Creed and we think about these things, that these are facts, these are doctrinal truths that we must understand, we must believe. If not, our faith is off, right? Because it's, it's not our faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith. And if the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is still, well, he wouldn't be Jesus Christ, um, he would just be dead, there is no object for our faith. So our faith is futile. Next one, please. I'm going to speed this up a little better. We're going to be here for a while. Apologize. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So again, you know, he, he died, he was raised, he ascended to heaven, and there he is with God interceding on our behalf, like he said he would. He sent the Holy Spirit, because if he didn't go, go away, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come, right? So again, it's important to understand that he has ascended, he is alive today, he's interceding on our behalf with God the Father. The part about when he will come again uh, to judge the living and the dead. If Jesus died for our sins, was buried, raised, ascended, and that was it, he, he was not going to come back to, to basically save his people, then our faith is losing and missing a very important piece, right? What this, this part here at the end, when he shall come to judge the living and the dead, the focus of that is Christ's return. He said he'll be with us till the end of the age and he will come back. And we see that very clearly in scripture that he has a promised return. And what that should help us to focus in on is as we look at, you know, he, he's, he's ascended, he'll come back to judge the living and the dead. There are parables throughout the, um, throughout the gospel books where I think about the, the, the ten virgins, right, with the oil. Some were ready, some were not. 
you know, Matt talked about that, gosh, it's probably been almost a year ago now. And the point was, be about God's work. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? We, we are supposed to be discipling people, as Jesus said in the Great Commission. We are to be spreading his light to a dark world. So that's really what we should be focusing on here is when, once he will come to judge the living and the dead, is his promised return. And what we need to be doing, we need to be about his business as we're waiting for his promised return. Julie, can you go to the next one? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and communion of saints. So we've seen the Trinity so far, right? Um, we've seen Father, we've seen Son, we've seen Holy Spirit. That is a core doctrinal truth of our faith is God in three persons, one essence, three persons, right? And we've seen that here. In John 16, 7, Jesus, as I alluded to a few moments back, said, when I go, I'll send the, um, the Holy Spirit. And we believe in that. We believe in the Holy Spirit as being with us, as living in us, as being part of the Trinity. And it's the Holy Spirit's presence and work in us that makes us part of God's family. So another thing that catches people up on the Apostles' Creed is the word Catholic. And as Matt explained last week, that, based, that means universal. That doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. Unfortunately, a word like hell you can replace with Hades and, and still have a true message. If you replace Catholic Church with something like the Universal Church, you, what do you mean by Universal Church? Right? You start getting into things like Unitarianism or something like that. So it's, I think it's better in this case just to understand what Catholic means. Right when this was written, it's the Universal Church. The um, we're a representation of that Universal Church here, or the local church body, this 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 family of believers. Um, but also, you know, it, it's everybody who has placed their faith in Christ in the past, in the present, and what will be in the future. And that's where we come in the communion of saints. The communion of saints doesn't refer to us taking communion or, or that, that certain um, rite that we do. It, it's talking about the body of believers who have faith in Christ, again, from the past to the present, and who will have it in the future. Again, God's people. Julie, can you go to the next one? Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. If we understand our nature as sinful creatures, right, we're all condemned by a holy God. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. That forgiveness, forgiveness of sin comes by the work of Jesus Christ alone. And although it is just a, a short piece in the Apostles' Creed, it is very important to understand that that it's the forgiveness of sin that comes through Jesus' work, and that is what allows us to be in God's presence. It's something that, you know, we don't earn, just to be very clear on, right? It's, it's a gift freely given to us. Resur <coughs> excuse me. Resurrection of the body. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead as well when he returns. So going back to where you know, he said he will come to judge the living and the dead, and he will bring his people home where we'll be with him forever, that is why it's important to understand there is a resurrection. Just as Christ was resurrected, he will resurrect us to glory. And life everlasting. This is, these three lines, not that the rest of it isn't hopeful, but this leaves us with the hope at the end of the Apostles' Creed. 
We have forgiveness of sins. It's not something we earn. It's freely given to us. We will be resurrected to be with God forever, that we will enjoy him and everything that he has. <clears throat> not for a short time, not for any set time, but for everlasting. Everyone's going to have an everlasting. There are some people who believe that after this life there's nothing, and that's unfortunate. But the truth of the matter is we're all going to have an everlasting. Will our everlasting be everlasting life, or will it be everlasting separation from God? Right? So, I mean, that, that leaves us with, with questions. Right, what this basically does at the end, it, it it tells us forgiveness of sins through Christ, resurrection of the body, as Christ was raised, and live with him forever. So what do we see from the Apostles' Creed? <clears throat> I meant to have a slide here that had the whole thing on there, so I apologize for not doing that. But if you're taking notes or if you think back through there. What do we see? What is it the Apostles' Creed teaches us, and why is it so important? We see the Trinity, right? A, a, a core doctrinal truth to being a true Christian. We see the deity of Christ. Again, if, he, if he's not God, then our faith is futile. We see his atoning work. That he came and he took our place on a cross and suffered in our place to give us his righteousness so that we may be with God. And he promised to return. That should give us assurance in this life that this isn't it. This isn't the end of it. There is more beyond this. right? And that's what we look forward to as we're about his work. I want to read something. To, to just wrap us up here. And the Apostles' Creed points to these great doctrinal truths, right? And it's all based on Scripture. Again, these summarize Scripture into statements that we can say, yes, this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. And I want to read something um, it's going to be some select passages out of Romans 8. Our grow group recently finished Romans 8. And that is just such a great and beautiful chapter in the Bible. Because it talks about, Paul talks about the promises that God has made. Who, who God is. Who, who the Father is. Who the Spirit is. Who the Son is. I mean, there, there's just so much richness in that and you know as I read through this I want you to think about the Apostles Creed and what we were just reading about so you can think about it actually is based on scripture because as I read some of these you will see the truth tying back to the Apostles Creed <clears throat> bear with me and again, this, this is just select um, verses out of Romans 8. I would highly encourage you, if you haven't read, read Romans 8 recently, go back and read it. It's, it's beautiful. It, it's hopeful. And it is so theologically rich. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We wait eagerly for adoptions as sons. 
the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through, them, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we go through there, did you hear the, the references back to the Apostles' Creed? I hope as we were going through that you were drawing back to that, the, 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 the truths of him being raised, of the promises that we have, and who our trust is in, and who paid the price for our sins. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for giving us these, these truths um, from your word. You know, just these, these pillars that we can stand on, this foundation that just speaks doctrinal truth and, and just takes your word in a nutshell and so powerfully and succinctly um, tells us who you are, helps us to know you better, helps us to be able to tell others who you are as we go forth and we, as we live out the commission that we've been given to, to teach others all that Christ commanded us. And Father, that your spirit lives in us and it is by his work that, that we know you and that we can be drawn near to you and that we are continually sanctified until you do glorify us, Father. We just thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that you would um, help us to remember all these truths that, that you're teaching us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.